taking the plank out of your own eye before taking the speck out of your brother's. Matthew 18, which is the one about go to your brother, uh, see if you can win him over, if not take two or three, one or two other people, so there's two or three witnesses, and then if he won't listen, tell it to the church, and if he won't listen to the church, let him be as if he were not a Christian. And then the 1 Corinthians 5, which is what we're going to look at this evening, and This is what our current church documents say. Do you know, I do hope I've got the right slides up here. Because I thought I'd... Let me just have a look. Yeah, I think I'm on the right one. Because I thought I'd deleted this. But anyway, there it is. This is the... uh, This is what's in our current documents. Discipline arises out of the responsibilities of church membership. Its purpose is to uphold the glory and the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ in his church, to maintain its purity here on earth, to sanctify each member and to reclaim and restore those who err. It is one of the means God has provided for the perseverance of the saints. Any action must be carried out in the spirit of Christian love and humility with a prayerful concern for the full restoration of the offender. Matters of personal offence should be settled by members according to the procedure laid down in Matthew 18. Any member who willfully neglects the responsibilities of church membership, who falls into doctrinal error or into open sin, will be subject to this ministry of love as exercised by the elders and church. Action may take different forms according to the seriousness of the case. In some cases, great discretion is required and therefore the elders are not to obliged to give the church all the details, but must be trusted with the government of the church. In difficult cases, the advice of other elderships should be sought. So uh, that's what's been in the church documents for years and years and years. Uh, It can be improved on, and that's what we're planning and hoping to do. What do we mean by church discipline? This was my rough and ready description Definition. What do you mean by church discipline? Church discipline is that exercise of the heavenly authority of the Lord within the body of Christ on earth at local church level by which professing Christians are advised, rebuked, penalized, or excluded if they will not repent of definite sin or sins. This is exercised informally by individuals through the elders and under the authority of the Lord Jesus as expressed through the gathered church. All Christians are meant to submit to this discipline and be prepared to exercise discipline. It is spiritually demanding, but ultimately for the good of all concerned. That was my sort of working definition. And the Matthew 18, we went through last time, I'll just click through that because I think I've given enough um, reference to that. I will simply remind us that in Matthew 18, the last half of the chapter is about this instinct that the Christian must have to forgive those who've offended against us. It's interesting, the Lord's Prayer he, he, we say, forgive our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. And then Jesus tacks on to the end of that, 
Because if you don't forgive other people their sins, your Heavenly Father won't forgive your sins. seems a very strong statement um, that forgiveness of one another is intrinsic to the way we view one another in the Christian life. We have a predisposition to forgive. And that summed up, or the thought of it summed up, in that quote from the story of uh, the king who was settling debts. Do you remember this story? He was settling debts, and the guy came to him who owed him thousands and thousands, which he couldn't possibly repay. And the master says, I cancelled all that debt of yours. And that sort of casts its, its light over the Christian life. Who are we? We're people who've had a huge, huge debt just cancelled. And therefore, how can we in our hearts um, be pernickety and say, well, that person owes me a fiver and I'm going to be on his back until he pays me back for it? That was Matthew 18. I think it's enough on that, isn't it? We, we, we saw that last time. So let's do 1 Corinthians 5. And you might say, actually, I could have worked that all out for myself. And perhaps you could, but let's do it together and we know that we've done it. So 1 Corinthians, let's begin by looking at the flow of the letter, the context of it, worth getting the context. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 4. Corinthians are such an interesting church. Sometimes they're held out as being the uh, sort of vanguard of what the early church ought to be like. If you look at them more closely, they're a really wacky, um, you know, I wouldn't like to, I would like to be one of the elders in the, in, the, in the church at Corinth. But Paul is incredibly gracious, and he says, verse 4, I thank God for you, because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus, for in him you've been enriched in every way, in all your speaking, in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you, therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift. So he builds them up and says, you're a genuine church, God's enriched you, you don't lack any, he doesn't say spiritual gift, he says charisma, so it just means gift, but perhaps it was spiritual, but he, um, the translator puts that in, but you don't lack anything, you're a fully equipped church. And then Paul puts at the end of that sentence, as you wait eagerly for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed, which is a little hint of what they have actually forgotten. Because they've forgotten that it's all about the future revelation of Jesus Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 15, when he gets the resurrection, he'll actually confront this and say, some of you don't even believe this is going to happen. How can you possibly live the Christian life if you're not looking forward to what happens when the Lord Jesus is revealed. Okay, Um, and he talks about verse 8. He will keep you strong to the end, so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, he's sort of flagging up quite early on. We're looking long term. We're looking to the end. That's where our horizon is. Okay, and then he launches in verse 10 pretty quickly. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so there's no divisions among you, and you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. So one of the features of this church is division. 
And <coughs> you will find it all the way through the letter, even find it at the Lord's table, that uh, the, the um, what are they, uh, the intelligentsia, the cognoscenti, are eating at one table and they've brought their caviar sandwiches and a nice bottle of something or other and they get on with that. Well, the other people who haven't got, you know, can't even scrape together a, a packet of crisps are, are at the Lord's table uh, and, and, and there's a division when they eat together. So he flags this up at this point. This is a real problem. You're a divided church. And he is going to link this to all sorts of things. But in verse 18, he, he uh, stretches out one hand to say, let's bring ourselves in contact with the cross. Because the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but for those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And the, and the themes he's going to be picking up here are power and wisdom, because the Corinthians are going to be dead interested in anything that's powerful. They're going to be dead interested in anything that is wise. And that is going to bring about divisions and cliques and competitiveness and looking down on one another because they think power, power, and wisdom. And Paul straight away or early on says, look, the, the most powerful thing that we have as Christians is the cross where Jesus died in his weakness. And the wisest thing we have as Christians is the cross where Jesus died in apparent foolishness. That's the thing that we measure everything by. Anyway, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, we find Paul saying, having said that they are fully spiritually equipped... He says, actually, uh, in some ways, you're completely immature. I could not address you, chapter 3, verse 1, as spiritual, but as... Well, whether the word worldly is in that sentence, I looked at some of the texts, and they weren't quite sure whether the word was there. The next word is infants. I think in our talk, in our speak, we would say, you're babyish. We would actually say, you're immature. You know, you think you're so powerful and wise. Really immature as Christians. And he talks, so in verse 3, there is the word fleshly. You are fleshly. There's jealousy and quarreling. Aren't you fleshly? The dynamic of your church is not as it should be from the cross and in the power of the Spirit, but it's in what the, the human flesh is all about which is a very different dynamic. Power, wisdom, competition, looking down on one another, dividing into groups because this is our sort of person and those are those sort of person and that sort of thing. And he, uh, <coughs> he works this through in terms of leadership. So some of them are, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, and they divide up on those sorts of lines. Moving into chapter 4, Verse 8, a key text. Another text flagging up they are not looking forward to the resurrection as they should. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings and that without us. 
So the Corinthians are saying, these apostles, like Paul, A little bit behind the, the, the curve. Paul um, seems very impressive, but actually when you see him, he's quite weak. And all he does is talk about the cross. And I, you know, I can think of half a dozen more powerful speakers just in Corinth than the Apostle Paul. You can see how the, the, what the sort of thing they're thinking. And Paul says, you know, you're kings, are you? You're ruling and powerful, strong and, and, and you think we're sort of on the scrap heap? You haven't got that right. Because the time when we rule as kings is in the future, not now. We are in the midst of a spiritual battle, spiritual warfare at the moment. And to think that you've already conquered and arrived is a, is a real miscalculation. Verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 18, you have become arrogant you think you know better than the Apostle Paul. And uh, so I mean, that's the sort of way the church is shaping up. They are, at verse 17, forgetting the apostolic teaching and the apostolic ways. So he says in chapter 4, verse 17, For this reason I am sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Sort of a rather humbling thing for the Corinthians because they're thinking, well, we're a bit special actually. We've, we've uh, gone a step ahead of these other churches. And Paul says, no, you haven't. Um, you're immature. And if you think you've gone a step ahead, you're quite mistaken. Actually, you've forgotten that uh, I, Paul the Apostle, embody the gospel and teach the gospel, and that's what you've got to come back to. So it's a genuine living church where the Holy Spirit is at work, but it's also an immature, flesh-driven church, as shown by their division and their arrogance. So having sort of led up to that, and you've got a little bit of a flavor of the sort of people that they are, uh, let's do in detail chapter 5. So he says it's actually reported there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among pagans. A man has his father's wife. It's some sort of incestuous relationship. And he says, you know, this is known, it's not a secret. And this particular sin is a known outward it's not just in, in imagination that, you know, these two have shacked up together. It's a gross sin because he says even, the, even your non-Christian neighbours would say, really? Can't believe that. Even they would be shocked by this. It's a known, outward, gross sin. Just for interest, chapter 1533... Is, is what happens. He talks about the, those who have not uh, a, a wobbly on the resurrection. And it's quite interesting that he doesn't say, cast them out of your fellowship. What he does do is reason with them 
And he says, uh, don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. I mean, different situations are different. And there's a call for the church to make a judgment on the relative magnitude of sins, including doctrinal sin. But it's just interesting here that the, the thing that he does single out for this disciplinary action is a gross, outward, obvious sin. Okay, let's move on. Now then, what does he say about their reaction? You are proud. Well, not surprising with the Corinthians, actually. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? And shouldn't you have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? That's what they should have done. They should have put out of their fellowship. They should have lifted out from their midst the person who's done this. So make sure I'm I'm probably going to anticipate my remarks, but it assumes that there is a midst to be in, that there is a group defined in some reasonably well understood way, and that they could take this person and say, you no longer belong to this group. You are excluded from our midst. So that has some implications about belonging and saying that you belong to a particular church and knowing who belongs and who doesn't. Now, what's the remedy? He says, shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and put out of your fellowship the man who did this? He says, even though I, that's I, Paul, the writer, the apostle, am not physically present, I am with you in spirit And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. So one component of what happens is this absence presence of the apostle. He says, uh, uh, physically, I'm absent from you, wherever he's writing from. Is he writing from Rome? I don't know. He's somewhere else physically, but he says, in a genuine spiritual sense, I am with you. There is an apostolic influence and an apostolic presence amongst you. And then he says, as an apostle, I judge this. I can do this. I I can see the rights and wrongs of this. It's an open and shut case. It is not right for a Christian man to uh, take as his sexual partner his father's wife. It's not right. Open and shut case. There's nothing debatable about this. And then he says, verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan Let's look at that bit at a time. So he says, there is a a way of the church assembling in the name of the Lord Jesus. And in this assembling, there is the presiding presence of the apostle or apostles. 
and there is the power of the Lord Jesus present. Now, I'd venture to say that there are some ways of the church meeting that don't have that. So I would say that if we went for a picnic, we could do that as a church, but it wouldn't have the same um, gravity as this sort of meeting here. Have a think about that. There's some ways that the church can get together which isn't quite like this, but there's some ways that the church get together that is like this. So in our way of doing things as an independent Baptist church, we have particular members' meetings to do spiritual business, and it seems to me that that meeting definitely qualifies as being like this here. We gather in the name of the Lord Jesus. We have the presence of the apostles through their writing, and we are told that the power of the Lord Jesus is particularly present. So there are meetings where you couldn't describe it quite like this, but there are meetings where this is exactly what happens. And he says, at such a meeting, hand this man over to Satan for, so that the sinful nature will be destroyed for the ruin of the flesh. Which sounds a very harsh thing, doesn't it? You'd say, how can that be Christian? But let's understand what he's saying. He's assuming that the, the circle which includes the Christian people, that's the church, the, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, is the kingdom where Christ rules, where it's his people, they belong to him, his, he is present there, and outside of that is the ordinary world where Christ's lordship is not recognized and in a sense is disputed, and this he calls the kingdom of Satan, or the place where Satan has his plans going, and he says that's where you, this person now finds themselves and for the ruin of the flesh, which does sound pretty harsh, but I think what he's saying is that outside the church, there are not the comforts and encouragements and support of Christian brothers and sisters. And I suppose you could say, if you put it the other way around, what a valuable thing it is to be in the church, to, to have the safety, the security, the prayerfulness, the looking out for one another, that happens within the church, and that you know that uh, that affects our flesh, it affects us physically, um, mentally, you know, really, and to be outside that is the place where, as he puts it here, the, there is the ruin of the flesh. It's a harsh statement, but the and, and let me just say that outside the protection of the church, there there are multiple paths down which your flesh can actually be ruined, aren't there? There are multiple paths that you can go down. I mean, if you think in terms of alcohol, if you think in terms of drugs, if you think in terms of promiscuity, think in terms of all sorts of ways. And there's no particular fence stopping you going all the way down. But in the church, there is. And he says that uh, handed over to Satan that the sinful nature may, may be ruined and that his spirit saved in the day of the Lord. So the aim of this is therapeutic. It isn't 
just to give this person a good spiritual punch in the eye. The aim is that even if they have to learn the hard way, that they will come back to the Lord. That's what the aim of it is. So before we move on, let's look at this. The presence or absence of the apostles. The apostles, in the sense that Paul means it, are dead. They are the people who wrote the Bible. There is no... no, blank pages at the end of the Bible for extra bits to be inserted. Know what I mean? I've got in my diary, I've got one of those clicky things like that, and you can buy extra pages to put in. And uh, I do that from time to time. Bibles aren't made like that, are they? Do you know what I mean? It's clicky, like a lever arch file. You can put more pages in the Bible. Because there are no more apostles to write the pages. So, So you're saying, well, Paul can't possibly be present with us, but I think the application of it is where Scripture rules, where we submit ourselves to the apostolic writing, the apostles do rule, do have the apostolic presence. We notice, too, this bit, the solemn, solemn not meaning we're all grim-faced, but serious church gathering. That's like in Matthew 18, isn't it? Tell it to the church. If they will not listen to the church, let him be as a pagan or a tax collector. So we have the same thing here of the ultimate um, end of the line, and this end of the line is reached almost immediately, of the church meeting in this sense, in the name and power of the Lord Jesus. And then I put a comment about handing over to Satan, which I've already commented on, and the aim to win this person over in the long term, which I've already commented on. So let's just follow through the rest of the chapter. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? So he now uses the the model, the, the illustration from the Old Testament of dough, with yeast in it, and the connection, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) to the Exodus, where the lamb was killed and eaten, and in conjunction with that, unleavened bread was eaten. The unleavened bread, the first instance, was bread that you had to make very quickly, it didn't have time to rise. I understand that the correct biology, is it biology, chemistry, it's not quite the same as our yeast, but it's, good in, it's a good enough analogy not, not to be misleading. So they, they, use, they say yeast. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. So he's he's using that Old Testament diet, food thing, as an illustration of the Christian life. So he links it first 
it, it links back to Christ. Christ has been sacrificed. Like the Passover. Christ, our, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Let us celebrate the feast in the appropriate way. And the appropriate way to celebrate the feast was with unleavened bread. And he says, well, our unleavened bread for us is, left, is, is where we remove the old yeast of badness, malice, and wickedness. So you get rid of those things. So it's not appropriate. That's how you, you, you can't celebrate the festival with that. So get rid of that, and we end up with bread of sincerity, meaning, I think, purity rather than honesty, but rather, uh, the bread of purity and truth. So if I were to move truth to trueness, you would see that the sh- that shade of meaning brings us more into this realm of, of uh, sexual sin. Uh, the, the bread that we're supposed to eat is of moral purity and trueness. Which is why a, a, a parallel illustration was that at, at the beginning of if you're married, you're faithful to the marriage partner. And, and Paul would say there are certain ways of behaving which are appropriate to the relationship you're now in and some that are definitely not appropriate. Here he says, it's like food, you keep the feast as some parts of the diet you don't have and some parts of the diet you definitely do have. And he's trying to make the same point. And then he says, now let us get this clear, because we're talking about the boundaries of the church. Verse 9, I've written to you in my letter not to associate with, well, it's a, it's a word with a few different components, so I've put with each mix, which is what the, the components of the word, meaning to, you know, mixed up together, to be together with, to be in the same um, bundle of, of things, not to associate, not to be, say, these are, my, me, these are my people. He says, I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. So, people are like this in the world, you you can't be surgically or clinically isolated from them. You know, you're going to have to buy your milk from somebody, you're going to have to get your car serviced by somebody, you're going to have to go to some bank or another to get your mortgage, and it's impossible to totally separate yourself from sin and sinners in this world. You, you, You can't do it, we're not meant to do it. But, he says, verse 11, I am writing to you that you must not associate, you know, these are my people, these, these, you know, we're, these are my people, not to associate with anyone who is named as a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a person do not even eat. He says, if it's, when we talk about within the church, that's different. And there is an incompatibility of being named as a brother and living 
as, he says, sexually immoral, covetous, idolater, drunkard, um, swindler. The word swindler, uh, as I understand the original, there's a bit more violence to it. So it's like a grabber. So I put mugger. Um, perhaps I've over, overdone that. If you have somebody in your church who you know is this, you, you, you can't do that. You can't have somebody in the boundary of the church who is like that. You're not even to eat with such a person. I think he means to eat in the sense that you're saying we're having fellowship together. Because I'm reminded that Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. So I think the, the eating of saying, you know, we're, we're having a conversation. I'm not, um, you know, not signing up to anything that you're offering me, but we are having a conversation. I think that's the sort of meal that Jesus had. What business of mine, verse 12, is it to judge those outside the church? Judge is such a word that we have to use carefully. So one of the ultimate sins in our current age is to be judgmental. How somebody decides if you're judgmental, presumably they have to judge that you're judgmental, but anyway, it's like a friend of mine who said it's absolutely wrong to make moral imperatives. Anyway, Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Well, he's already judged them, hasn't he? He said they're covetous, idolatrous, slanderous, swindlers. I mean, that's what they are. So he's not afraid to make a moral analysis. What he must mean is it's not my business to act in judgment, to sort of unilaterally um, act towards them. He says, it's not my jurisdiction to act. I, I know what sort of people they are. I'm not blind. I'm not stupid. I know that's wrong, but I, I don't have the authority to act against them. However, in the church, uh, he says, God will judge those outside. Are you not to judge those inside? Uh, and he says that, yes, we are. It's a right thing to be looking out for one another and assessing, in that sense, one another and saying... No, so and so. Um, brand new television last week. Uh, just like the one that got stolen from um, the shop down the road. In fact, it's actually got on the television. That's where it came from. That's not right, is it? Um, that is not acceptable to have somebody known as a brother who is any of these things. Thief. Expel the wicked man from among you. He says you've got to act. The, the expel the wicked man from among you is a quote from several places in Deuteronomy, which we looked at some months ago. They're on the screen there. And in each of those cases, um, no, that's not quite true. As I recall, in many of those cases, there was a death penalty. Purge the wicked one from among you. The way they did it was to stone 
or otherwise execute the guilty person. And this, they exited the community via a hearse. It's interesting that Paul says the imperative of keeping the community pure is still the same. But you don't do it by killing them. We don't have a members meeting in which we decide to hang somebody. That would be a thought, wouldn't it? But we can and should, if necessary, have a members meeting to expel somebody who is living in or has committed gross outward sin. And I think that's pretty much it. So there's some inclusions. There are sins that were outward and grossly so and are incompatible with the Christian faith if persisted in and not repented of. I thought about that. Hmm. Are there some sins that if you just commit them once? Have a think about that one. There are degrees of sin. The Christian church as a body has a duty to exclude such a person. And there is a challenge of a church being willing to act together. And perhaps in a moment David might be prevailed on to tell us a reminiscence about this from his experience. The a church can meet in such a way that the name and the power of the Lord Jesus is present under apostolic authority and there is a spiritual power there to do this work. The guilty person is treated as not a Christian. The aim is to try and to save them. For example, by this strong reminder of what they are now letting themselves in for and what they are missing. It is the duty of the responsible church to do this. Being a church member makes this a whole lot clearer. So if somebody is signed up as a member of this church, we know jolly well it's our job to look out for them. If it's somebody that we see from time to time, it's a little bit more difficult to know. It's our job to, to, to uh, do this disciplining or do they belong to somebody else? Church membership makes this a whole lot clearer. This power operates within the realm of the local church. What we expect of society is a different thing. So if you think about um, Christian Institute, Christian Concern, just have to be careful that Paul quite clearly says it is unrealistic and actually not expected of us to try and impose Christian behaviour on the world outside. Now, we do have some input into the world outside and we can say to people if you live that way it will just damage you so as far as you're going to listen to us we really advise you and we use our our abilities as citizens in a democracy to try and persuade and influence to say don't legislate that legislation or don't um, don't endorse that form of behavior but he does make a difference doesn't he we're not Mandated to impose Christian behaviour on people outside the Christian church. And I think this is my final point, exclusion and expulsion is important for the health of the church. When it's the appropriate thing, it's an important thing for us to do. 
I've stopped. David, you, you shared something with me. Was that just an entirely private observation? Or would you, or would you, would you? Yeah, no, I just, um, I, I, it's many, many years ago, but I have been in a church where the, the practice of discipline was necessary. There was a, a young lady in the church who managed to seduce a married man and had done it more than once, in fact. Uh, but, but when it, you know, she was in the church, and when it came to light that this has happened... It, it absolutely had to be taken seriously and the, and the elders had had worked through that the recommendation to the church was that she had to be put out of membership at least for a period uh, and, and along the lines of what we had heard um, you know, the, the idea was that this would help her to see how grave the thing was and, and that she would be excluded from communion for a while and, until there were signs that this is clearly over and not to be repeated um, but it's quite interesting how in, in the church, perhaps there was just an unusual older couple who were not very strong in God, not very well taught. And of course, as soon as this first came forward, this person has to be dealt with, we have to exclude them. Um, they, they made quite a scene and said, oh, you know, how can you do this? I mean, you know, I could so easily uh, sin like this and, and, and would you, you know... So they, they were sort of stirring up in some way some division that, that um, you know, if this happened among, you know, I, 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 you know we, shouldn't be, we shouldn't be excluding them. Mm. Uh, so you can see how you just have to tread a very even course. But it's, you know, when you're seeing that the aim is that, uh, and I think when, when challenged, actually, the pastor at the, at the church said, you know, this woman needs to know that we are taking this seriously. And if you glossed over it, um, it, you know, it was important that she knew, the church knew, and, and that it was a public thing. Thank you. No. What was the question? Oh, was the man in the church? And the answer was no. No. Okay. Anybody liked? Anybody else like to comment or ask a question? Martin, how would you how would you view someone who's been taken in a public sin, um, but is repentant? Would you still need to exclude them for a period because of the public aspect of it? I suppose one one answer to that is that. There are some things that Scripture gives us as clear sort of framework examples. So this is a, a clear example. Of what Matthew 18 is a clear, clear example. And I think the way Scripture operates is it gives us some clear examples in this territory, this territory, this territory, and then many other things fall in between that. And it is a matter of wisdom and judgment for uh, the church and the elders to work out an appropriate path, bearing in mind the, the, the principles that Scripture gives us. So I would say, 
I, I think I would try not to give you an immediate answer to that. I would say it depends on a lot of things. So, for example, we have had in the church people who are convicted criminals, and they have been quite clear that they have committed a crime in the past, uh, perhaps served a prison sentence, and that is in the past, that's not what they're trying to do now, and I don't think there'll be any point in any church disciplinary angle to that. They're repentant sinners, and goodness knows, you know, if, if the Lord were to expose all the things that we've said and done, you know, who, who would stand? So uh, uh, if it was something that happened sort of in the ongoing life of the church, I think there'll be a, a, a possibility of, of saying, you know, we have a members meeting to discuss this and to say to the person, well, this is something we did do in the past, you were already repentant, but we want to say to everybody, what you did was wrong. We can't possibly endorse it or approve it. Uh, approve it. Um, and we make that as a solemn statement, but we, we do appreciate that you're already repentant, so we, we take it no further. Steve? That just reminds me of an, actually, an actual example which we had here, which you probably remember, Phil, if you think back to the, our youth, um, <laughs> where there was a couple who were both sort of active, prominent members of the church, a young couple, who were engaged to be married, but who, in fact, the, the fiancé, the, the woman, got pregnant before the marriage. Um, and this was discussed, I think, by the, by the elders and by the church as to what should be done. They had already committed to be married and they, you know, they were repentant. As, as I recall, we simply made a statement saying this is not acceptable behaviour, but as you've repented, yeah. we will not exclude you from the church. I think that's what we did. And I, um, I think so too. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Jerome? It's probably quite unlikely, but what would happen if you had a disciplinary issue where it was both a spiritual church, ecclesiastical matter, but also a civil matter? Uh, I'm trying to think of an example. Um, say someone was engaging in some kind of criminal activity that was clearly, I don't know, say, say I was dealing drugs in church. I needed to be disciplined. That's both a church issue. That requires church discipline. But it's also a civil matter. How, how would we address that as a church? Well, that's a good question. And, um, it's, it's probably very unlikely, but it could own, happen, yeah. couldn't it? Sorry? It's probably very unlikely. Well, I hope it's unlikely. Uh, I'd be dealing well, drugs. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, you know, some things do cross yeah. into both spheres. They do. They do. Well, again, I, I'm, I don't want to uh, sort of back myself into a corner by giving an answer when there are a number of variables that might be in the case there. If somebody was dealing drugs in the church, so Sunday morning we had a little huddle over in the corner there, then that would be totally unacceptable and would... Would be, would be said to be so. I mean, this... Uh, uh, mm. 
I think it is not unlikely that somebody on the path to becoming a Christian or being a very new Christian might find themselves struggling with parting off from a drug habit as they might from an alcohol habit. And I think there it would be a question of weighing up, uh, well, weighing up all sorts of things. Uh, So I wouldn't automatically think that, let's say, a new Christian comes along and uh, says, oh, I was smoking funny cigarettes last night, whether we would immediately report them to the police or whether we would say there's actually, if you want to say, a, a sort of a pastoral aspect to this rather than simply a disciplinary aspect to it. Anybody else got more wisdom on that? I suppose one, one area where that could be more, maybe the, the, the drugs wasn't a particularly good example, but, you know, one... You know, a sexual dis- misdemeanor in the church um, that involved children, that, for example, would be a. Oh, well, that if, would be, if, that, if, if, if we know, were that's to- an extreme one, obviously, but that's where that, that would be both. That's, that's when you're in the realm of the, both the spiritual, ecclesiastical, and the civil, aren't you? And when it comes to child safeguarding, the internal procedures of the church are overtaken and outflanked by the legal requirements, which are actually quite stringent. And even a a whiff or a hint of behaviour that put children at risk would would most likely trigger a uh, a, a sort of a quasi-criminal legal train of events so that, that would be a special case, I think. I mean, we have, been, we have been revising some of the things in the Constitution, and this is how this, some of these things actually came up. Um, as Phil said, I, uh, the safeguarding policy says that in that case... Clearly, the, um, uh, the, we shouldn't be covering up crimes. Now, there is a caveat, as Phil says, that um, you know, if somebody's smoking pot, I mean, would you normally initially send them to the police? You wouldn't. No, no citizen would. You would say uh, you know, that you shouldn't be doing this. But with, with that caveat, I cannot see that it's ever the correct procedure for the church to cover up a crime and uh, I don't know what we've decided on the end, but I certainly sort of strengthened the safeguarding statement when I, when I was going through the Constitution to, say, to, to make it more general than just safeguarding. Um, because that's what Peter says, isn't the civil authority there is, is to judge crime. And, and, you know, you should expect to be punished if you're, if you're not doing good. And the question is, obviously, then, what is a crime? And <laughs> it's not as simple as that, but... My, my view is that the basic principle is that if we are aware that a crime is being committed, then we should report it to the civil authority. The Catholic Church has got itself in all sorts of mess by its policy of the, um, the confessional being uh, not you know, privileged. Yeah. Um, and I think it's because they haven't thought the thing through properly. 
that it, it's not our business to, to cover up a crime. And if it, if it is, if we try and do that, then it, it's a whole can of worms. It get, can get us into a tremendous mess. And therefore, the basic principle, accepting that you know, there, are, there are cases that are going to be debatable and where there is a pastoral issue, that, that it's not our job to cover up a crime. And in fact, one of the nine Marks books, is it the church membership? One, I think it is, isn't it? Give, gives an example of somebody who was accepted into church membership and the members realized, or the elders realized that he was actually in this, in, this is in America, he was in the country illegally. And um, they did, you know, say, well, you really should go and confess this to the authorities. They didn't immediately sort of ring the police and say, we've got an illegal immigrant here. They did say that to the person, you should go and confess this. And, and he refused to do so for a while. And I think eventually they did, I can't remember exactly what it says, but they said they certainly put him out of the church. I think they may have reported it to the civil authority as well. They put him out of the church and then there's a happy ending to the story. But the happy ending was that he, was, he did get deported and then realized that they'd been right and that the Lord had actually was leading him to work back in his native country. So there was certainly a, a res restoration there. But I, I cannot see that it's, it's basic. Well, I mean, I, there are dubious cases and gray areas, obviously. But I, I cannot see that, the, you know, I think the basic principle is that the church should never attempt to cover up a crime on pastoral grounds. Uh, That's what Peter says, I think. I just wanted to say, as I'm listening to everything, that there's a couple of things just about Jesus that I just think we, you know, because I think we've gone a long way over to the left, if you like, or the right, maybe. You know, and maybe just bring it back that um, uh, Mary Magdalene committed a crime by committing adultery. And everyone wanted to judge her and stone her. And Jesus said, you without sin throw the first stone. And the other thing, that when the thief on the cross died next to Jesus, he repented. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. I know he was getting punished for his sin. And, and Nicodemus, who ripped everyone off, once he repented, I don't think... Pardon? Just like here, sorry. I know he repented, but Jesus didn't call the police. And I'm not saying we shouldn't. I think we should, you know, people should maybe pay for crime. I'm not saying that crime should ever pay. Uh, you know, you should always, there should always be a punishment. But I also think that there should be some measure of pastoral discussion around things like smoking pot or... Or, you know, I know we put that your church put that lady out of the church and things like that. But I think if we get too harsh and too disciplinarian, then, then we lose stuff. And also, you know, when Jesus said, oh, you're, you're, I know it was a totally different context, but he still said, you know, when you take your brother to, the, to a magistrate rather than try and sort something out, you know, it, it would be better to sort that out because... You know, it, that's a bit about the plank and the splinter and, and what have you. You know, he's more or less saying, you know, if you do that, expect some comeback for yourself. So, so I just wanted to bring it back to the middle. Yeah, there's, 
I think there's, there's quite a lot of dimensions. There are in, a lot in, of dimensions, in, but that's yeah. why I wanted to bring it back. Yeah, yeah. Because it is now really, we're getting a bit legis legislative. Okay, I'd... No, he was, he was just uh, carrying, he's the microphone carrying person. I think it'd be great if we did actually have 10 minutes to pray together, so let's stop just there and I'll put some things on the screen. Lord, we thank you for uh, being able to open this subject up and we continue to pray that as a church we might be uh, wisely informed and uh, equipped and prepared for something that we hope, in a sense, will never happen. Uh, but please uh, help us to take on board all the issues of care for one another, of uh, the, the spirit in our own hearts, uh, of the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus, and of the um, entirely reasonable um, concern that the bride of Christ should be pure and true. Uh, and so we ask you, Lord, to be our redeemer, our helper, our deliverer, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I put up on the screen.